the peacemaker. Now, that's a bold thesis in two words, especially when we're talking about the subjects of our conversation today. Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and the threat of nuclear war. But that's exactly the argument of our guest today, Dr. William Inboden, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and author of a new biography, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. I'm Brian Franklin, Associate Director of the Center for Presidential History, and I'm here this season with my co-hosts, Tamal Pilla and Tyler McCall, undergraduate students and research assistants at the SMU Center for Presidential History. This is Episode 9 of the fourth season of our podcast, The Past, The Promise, The Presidency. Here's our conversation now with Dr. William Inboden. Hello, my name is Tyler McCall with the Center for Presidential History at SMU. Today, I am joined by Dr. William Inboden of the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Inboden, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be with you. So the first thing we want to start out with, you know, you have your new book about Reagan and the Cold War. And so we wanted to ask, what was one of the most surprising discoveries that you found in your research for this project? Sure, it's a great question. And, you know, having spent several years uh, researching the book, including a lot of time in the archives at the Reagan Presidential Library and, and uh, other archives, there's many interesting things I found. I mean, there was the importance of Asia to, to Reagan's ov- overall policy would be one. But the one I will mention here is the centrality of Reagan's Christian faith to his overall foreign policy. You know, when I started the research, I had a general sense that he was a, a man of faith, but I did not know much about the depth or sincerity of it or or how much it shaped his approach to Cold War and his overall foreign policy. But that uh, really came out abundantly in the course of the research. Everything from early in his presidency when he survives the assassination attempt and he comes very close to, to dying, we, we now know it's a horrifying moment. He prays for God to heal him. He prays that God will forgive John Hinckley Jr., the deranged young man who had tried to assassinate him. And then Reagan says very clearly he believes that God spares him, spares his life for a reason to help reduce the threat of nuclear war and to bring the Cold War to a peaceful end. So that right there, even early in his presidency, really shows that, uh, you know, the the depth of his faith. Um, And then similarly, uh, to understand his uh, loathing of Soviet communism, it's not just because it's politically oppressive. It's not just because it's an inefficient economy. It's not just because it's expansionistic. It's because it's atheistic. And he just finds that so appalling that this entire ideological and political system would be predicated on oppressing religious believers, on shutting down uh, houses of worship, on imprisoning uh, clergy, uh, and on requiring all of its citizens to uh, believe in atheism. And uh, for Reagan, who believed in religious freedom and certainly had a, a deep faith in himself, that was one of the cores of why he detested Soviet communism so much and so committed to supporting religious dissidents behind the Iron Curtain and promoting religious freedom there. Even to the point of in his final summit meeting with Gorbachev in Moscow in 1988, Reagan spends part of the time trying very earnestly to persuade Gorbachev to believe in God. So this is 
as I've said in other settings, it's not the typical fare for superpower diplomacy, which is usually about arms control and economic relations, things like that. It's a very personal conversation Reagan has with him about why he hopes Gorbachev, the atheist, will believe in God. So that was a big revelation for my research. Of course, we're living in a very different world order than the 1980s. But do you think that what you've discovered about President Reagan has any bearing on what we see unfolding in the executive office today or any current applications? I do. And I I want to stress uh, that I wrote the book as a pure history, by which my main goal with the book was just to provide a fresh and hopefully interesting recounting and narrative of Reagan's foreign policy and American national security during the 1980s. So I don't include in the concluding chapter, 10 lessons from Reagan for today, or what does this mean for the the American presidency today? That said, uh, over the course of researching and writing the book, and now that I'm speaking about it and doing different op-eds, there are a number of reflections or potential applications that come up today. And I'm also struck that, you know, even though Reagan left office over three decades ago, he was first elected over four decades ago, this is, you know, almost two generations ago, he still looms large in the public consciousness. You know, he still sort of stands astride American presidential history as, as one of the most consequential ones. So I think that tells us something. And so what does it mean for today? First, I think he reminds us of the ability of the chief executive of the United States to inspire the country, to set a particular strategic vision, to help set the agenda for how the American people feel about ourselves, feel feel about our country, and not just in a gushy way, but do they believe the United States is capable of overcoming our challenges, domestic unrest and division, economic stagnation travails, significant national security challenges and threats, whether it's the Cold War then or our current challenges today with China and with Russia. I think even Reagan's detractors would admit that he was a very consequential and loomed large as president. I think he showed the ability in that office to to inspire, and not just in terms of some moving speeches, but to set a particular strategic vision, saying these are my priorities for the country, and this is where I want to take us, and I welcome and I implore the American people to please please support me in this. And so it captures those more uh, inspirational, ideological, or even you know ceremonial aspects of the presidency beyond, of course, the other duties of being the chief executive and managing the day-to-day operations of the executive branch. So sort of spinning off of that answer, how does your book and research challenge the existing schools of thought surrounding the Cold War and U.S. presidential history? My book challenges a number of those. And again, I hope it'll be a worthy contribution to these ongoing debates. And as my former boss, President George W. Bush, used to comment, and still does, when people would ask him about his historical legacy, he'd say, you know, here we are on the 21st century and people are still debating the first George W., George Washington, his legacy and presidency. And so people will debate, you know, mine, George W. Bush for quite some time. And that and that's certainly true. I say that by way of preface because that's going to be the same case with the Reagan presidency. There already have been a number of debates about the Reagan presidency and the end of the Cold War. My book stakes out some particular turf there. I hope mine's a good contribution. And another word, it certainly won't be the last word. I expect 100 or 200 years from now, these debates will be continuing. Okay, so what are some of these debates or ways that my book may make a challenge? 
One is there is a school of thought among some scholars and then, you know, some policymakers and other ordinary people that the peaceful end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union were somehow inevitable or foreordained or the product largely of structural forces in the international system. And the fact that Reagan was president during this time that the Cold War was winding down and these cracks in the Soviet Union were beginning to appear, he was more just lucky that he just happened to be in the right place at the right time when these momentous changes are are, are taking place. And I try to acknowledge in my book that there certainly are significant structural forces in play with internal decay in the Soviet system or the shifts in the international system. But I make an argument for Reagan's agency and Reagan's leadership accelerating those, perhaps accentuating them, and making a meaningful difference. So that would be one. Another area of debate is, did Reagan actually have a strategy, or was he rather just reading off cue cards that his staff and advisors prepared for him, or was he just kind of improvising and making it up as he goes along? I try to make a case. I think the evidence is is pretty clear. Readers will, of course, judge for themselves that from the beginning of his presidency, even before he arrives in his presidency, Reagan has a pretty clear strategic vision of combining pressure and outreach with the Soviets, right? That he wanted to certainly put more pressure on them to further weaken the Soviet system, to deter its ability to expand and to threaten the United States. But also he had a strategy of outreach, of diplomacy. And I summarize this as he was seeking their negotiated surrender. That's a, another area that my book makes a particular argument, which I hope readers will find persuasive, but I certainly know not, not all of my fellow scholars will. If there was one lesson that you hope readers will take away about the office of the president or about Reagan from reading your book and listening to your event at SMU, what would you want that takeaway to be? Yeah, it's a great question. I think my main takeaway for, or I hope that readers and audience members would take away is that a president doesn't need to be perfect to still accomplish great things. Reagan had many flaws. There were some terrible episodes in his presidency, the Iran-Contra scandal, staff feuding and, and mismanagement, some pretty big mistakes and missteps with his Middle East policy. Plenty of reminders there of his fallibility. But I still think he was able to accomplish great things and that a president, you know, our presidents don't need to be perfect, but what they do need to get is the two or three biggest things right that they face, whether it's defending the nation against the threat of terrorism, again, as George W. Bush did, or recognizing the vulnerabilities in the Soviet Union and looking for a peaceful victory in the Cold War, as Reagan did, while also trying to restore the growth and vibrancy of the American economy. I hope this book can remind us of the possibilities of presidential leadership, if there is a great president in there, but also chasten or circumscribe some of our expectations. You know, Our presidents don't need to be perfect. They're going to have flaws. They're all human beings, but they can still do great things if it's the right person at the right time. Powerful message. Well, Dr. Imboden, thank you so much for joining me today. And we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday, April 19th at 6 o'clock p.m. Thank you so much, Tyler. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Past, The Promise, The Presidency. If you want to learn more after this conversation, we encourage you to do two things. First, 
go check out Dr. Bowden's book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink, published by Dutton. Secondly, if you'd like to see Dr. Bowden's presentation on his book, visit SMU's campus on April 19th in the McCord Auditorium at 6 p.m. Now, if you're unable to make it, you can still find a recording of his talk after on our website at www.smu.edu slash cph. The Past, the Promise, the Presidency is a production of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Our thanks to SMU's Dedman College of Humanities and Sciences and the Office of the Provost for their support. Thank you to Pro Podcast Solutions and to our CPH team, especially Tamal Pilla and Tyler McCall for producing this episode, whose original theme music was composed by Marshall Engel. For show notes, more information on the expert guests featured in our conversations, and more about all our past seasons, visit pastpromisepresidency.com. We hope you'll join us again next week for our next conversation.